And our speaker for this morning is Dr. Jean M. of Florida. Jean. Quick, wasn't it? Thank you, Jim. <laughs> you know, it's, it's marvelous to be here, to be invited to attend a meeting like this and be asked to speak. And the most amazing thing is that it's only been eight or nine years ago that the only thing I was asked to do was leave. <laughs> and you know, the, the thing that was all wrong then is the same thing that's all right this morning, because my name is Dr. Gene, I am an alcoholic. <laughs> and I'm glad to be here. <clears throat> and I suffer from this strange and peculiar disease, alcoholism. And I guess this is really the only group of people that really understand what it means to be an alcoholic. I, I don't believe that it's at all possible for anyone, no matter how devoted he might be or how intense and interested, to understand what it means to have alcoholism, except those of us that have experienced the disease and then suffered the agony of recovery in this very wonderful and vital and majestic way through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That makes it unusual. There's not many things in medicine that you have to experience to really appreciate. I know several years ago I was uh, doing the general practice, we called it then, They've sophisticated it some now. Down in Melbourne, Florida. And one night I was delivering a little 21-year-old lady. And she was a problem, and I was a problem. We were out of anesthesia. So I, during labor, convinced her of the advantages of natural childbirth. Her husband was pacing up outside the door. He had been overseas for the last 10 months, and I knew he and I were going to have something to talk about. And she had a traumatic delivery, and she screamed and hollered and raised all sorts of sand. And I, I know after that was over with, I went back to the doctor's lounge and took a little nip of something I had laying around, and I was complaining about how these women could cry and scream and carry on. And the maid was cleaning up, and she finally looked at me and said, well, doctor, it do hurt. And I didn't pay any attention to her, and I kept on with my lecture. And finally she said, well, it do hurt. And I said, well, what do it feel like? She said, well, take your lip between your thumb and your forefingers. And, and I did. She said, now pull it forward. And I did. She said, now slip it over your head. <laughs> and you know, my, my alcoholism was, was like that. There were a lot of similarities between the way I walked through my alcoholism and pregnancy. I vaguely remembered some good times when it first started, but it wasn't very long until it started to show, you know, and it took all my effort to try to hide it. But it became more and more and more obvious, and finally, for some strange reason, I, I finally went into labor and suffered recovery. And one more thing happened at that time. I experienced the miracle of new birth. I hear people talking a lot of times in Alcoholics Anonymous about being <clears throat> spiritually bankrupt. But I died spiritually. And I died emotionally and I almost died physically. And this fellowship gave me new life. And that's really one of the miracles of it. People often ask me <clears throat> what it feels like to be an alcoholic. I can't explain that either. But it's sort of like a patient I had one time when I first started practicing me uh, medicine up in North Carolina. He was an old mountaineer, and he came in, and he said, Doc, I want you to pull my tooth. His name is John Jenkins. I said, John, I can't pull a tooth. I ain't no dentist. He said, well, you're a doctor, ain't you? And I said, yeah, but I can't pull a tooth. He said, well, Doc, we ain't got no dentist. I want you to pull this tooth. So I said, all right, you silly son of a reason. I said, now, I can't deaden that tooth. I don't know how to give you anesthesia. He said, I don't make no never mind. He said, on a couple of times in my life, I've had pain that was so severe that since then I've not had any awareness of hurt. I said, okay. 
So I had to split the gum, you know, and I got my knife out, and I kind of wiped it off my britches, and I made a little incision there in the, in the, in the gingiva, and John spit out the blood, and I got a little pale. Asked me if he wanted to drink, and he said no, so I took a little nip, and um, I got my pliers, and I pulled on that tooth, and I broke off the roots, you know, and he gave me a little nail, and I put it down beneath the roots, and I prized them out, and John just kind of squashed the blood around his mouth and spit it out, and I said, Jesus, man, didn't that hurt? He said, no. So, well, John, tell me about these, this time that you had this pain that's made you immune to suffering. So John kind of laid back, and he said, uh, several years ago, Doc, we was out hunting, We'd hunted all day long and hadn't had no luck, and long about four o'clock in the afternoon, we came up across an old log, so I set my gun down on the tree there, you know, and I hunched, I hunched down over this log to kind of relieve myself, and unbeknownst to me, there was a bear trap chained to that log. He said, you know, I must have moved a little too much, because that bear trap went off and grabbed me, and I got pale, and he got pale, and I took a little nip, and he took a little nip, and... I said, well, Jesus, John, that must have been awful. He said, it were. So when's the next time you had pain like that? He said, when I got to the end of that chain. <laughs> and you know, that this is the way my alcoholism was, exactly the way it was. I, I was running through the present, suffering from the disaster of the past and pulling it with me. But I full well knew that at the very next step, I was going to get to the end of that chain. And I lived for years and years and years, day in and day out, with a constant unrelieved sense of impending doom. I know today what causes that feeling of impending doom or impending disaster in the suffering alcoholic. That feeling of impending doom is caused by impending doom. <laughs> and I used to worry why I was so depressed, you know. And now I know. But that's the way I spent a good part of my life. And fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, I did the same thing that all doctors of medicine do when they start suffering from alcoholism. I did two things. I started taking pills. And I took any pill that said, warning, maybe habit forming on it. And I did the other thing that a lot of us do. I went to psychiatrists. Now, Joe made me promise yesterday I wouldn't talk about psychiatry. That's one of the few lies I told yesterday. <laughs> You know, I don't, now, I, I don't have anything against psychiatrists. All of them I've, I've known have been cut from a very fine pattern. They just sewed up wrong. And, <laughs> but I did. I had 23 and a half psychiatrists. <laughs> funny thing about my medical training, you know, I, I'd always had a desire to do general practice. And to prepare myself for this, I took a year surgery and a year of medicine. Then I went out and did general practice, and then I paused and came back and took a residency in pathology. Then I had another year and a half in internal medicine. And the most peculiar thing is that at no time during this career of training did I ever think about psychiatry. And I should have. God knows I was sick enough. I never thought of it, though. But I went to psychiatrists and... I had shock treatment. I spent 22 months on lock wards. And I was anxious to get well, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried. My wife tried. My my friends tried. My colleagues tried. And nothing worked. I went to churches, and I changed churches. I finally decided to try the synagogue. A friend of mine took me down to visit his rabbi one day. I was nervous. I said, well, gee, I'd like to go to the bathroom. He said, I'll go with you. And we went to the bathroom. They had one of these communal places. And he and I were standing there. And he said, well, I see the first thing you're going to have to do is have a little operation. <laughs> and I wasn't willing to go any lengths, any lengths so, so that didn't work. <laughs> in 1970, I was practicing pathology after a fashion in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Now, I was in Ardmore because that was the only place I could find to practice. And they had accepted me because I was the only pathologist they could find. And my alcoholism was as bad as it had been for the last 20 years. But 1970, a friend of mine that did OBGYN asked me how many children we had. 
And I told him we had one daughter. And he asked me if we wouldn't like to adopt a child, and I said, sure. So at about midnight on November the 5th of 1970, he called us up and said, you've just adopted a little baby boy. And that boy's name's Bullet. And I was in Ardmore because I'm an alcoholic. It got me there at the right place at the right time. So I have reason to be thankful for my alcoholism. And Ardmore was kind of a hit and miss proposition. Things weren't going too well. Uh, and they got worse. In September of 1971, my wife was seeing her first psychiatrist. She developed a problem with alcohol. She'd seen him several times, and I went with her one time. She said, well, tell me more. He said, tell me more about this alcohol problem you've got. And she said, I brought him along. <laughs> this is my half psychiatrist. I don't claim full credit for this fella. <clears throat> but you know, something happened to me that day in that office. I had never really heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. Didn't know anything about it. But it was there on that day in September 1971 that I took the first step of this program. He said, Doctor, what's wrong with you? And I said, I'm an alcoholic and my life's in shambles. I admitted then to being something I didn't understand, didn't comprehend, but I knew was true. I'm glad it didn't say that I accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic. I'm not sure I would have done that. But I did in September of 1971 admit that I was an alcoholic. I said, my God, what can I do? He said, what kind of insurance do you have? I said, Blue Cross. He said, well, Alcoholics Anonymous would be the best thing for you. But I want you to come to my transactional analysis group. And I must admit, it did work. As long as I attended, I did fine. His groups met on Tuesday, and I attended faithfully for a week. On the, <laughs> on the way back to Ardmore, Oklahoma, from Oklahoma City, my wife and I decided we had found the problem... And all I had to do was drink with some measure of control. So we went back, and the next day I went out to drink with some measure of control. And during this control drinking, I bought a new car and went out and turned it over, and I was admitted to the hospital that I was a pathologist in, unconscious. And my good friends called one of the surgeons that didn't think much of me anyhow to see me to take care of my head injury, and he said, oh, hell, he's drunk. They put me in a private room. And I came to about 6, 6.30 at night, I remember. My wife had my clothes, as she always did when I was hospitalized. And I was so afraid, so terrified, that I got up and <clears throat> walked down to my laboratory <clears throat> in this little vented hospital gown, walked through the lobby and got the key from the switchboard operator, went back to, to the lab and got some isopropyl alcohol, put it in a little baggie, and stuck it up under my arm as the nurse came to get me. Took me back to my room, and I can remember pouring that into a glass after she had left. And looking at it and thinking, oh, my God, I know I shouldn't, but if I don't, I'll die. So I drank what was one of my favorite drinks, 100 proof, isopropyl alcohol. And the next morning, I woke up in ICU. Through a series of events, and because they insisted on it, I went away to do something about my drinking. And I went to a rehabilitation center in Dallas, Texas. And it was there that I first became aware of Alcoholics Anonymous. This center was run by two men that were members of AA. And it was a 28-day course on recovery. And they were knowledgeable about how they had gotten sober, but they didn't know one thing that I have since learned was essential to me. To me, it was absolutely necessary to learn that the treatment for alcoholism is not the magic words Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's a 12-step program that's embodied within this fellowship. And on the last two days of my stay there, we spent four or three-hour sessions on the 12 steps. And I thought, aren't they interesting? You see, I knew I was an alcoholic, <clears throat> but I still didn't know what that meant. I did fine during this center, and I probably would have recovered, but my wife goofed again. She was supposed to have been there at noon when I was discharged, and she didn't make it till 1 o'clock. And while I was waiting on her, I discovered a whiskey store across the street. So I had 30 minutes of sobriety after 20 days of treatment. 
And I went back to Ardmore and said, here I am. I've gone away and done something about my drinking. They said, you didn't understand. We said, why don't you go away and you may as well do something about your drinking. So since I was only 45, I went back home to Mama. <laughs> my family stayed in Ardmore for some strange reason. And I went to Oklahoma City. My wife did, I believe, come up to visit me my first weekend there and took one look at me and carried me over to a mission house on 13th, 17th and Broadway in Oklahoma City. That's, that's Skid Row in Oklahoma City. And she didn't have much out on, so she dumped me out and left in hate. And they put me down in the basement of this mission house, and I can remember waking up on a cot down there next to a coal-burning furnace with vermin on me that were getting off me onto the cot. And looking around, there were a bunch of little skid row people with malnutrition and unshaven, shaky winos. And I was incensed, because I was a doctor of medicine. I was a board-certified pathologist. I didn't belong there, you know. I belonged in a group like this. So I left. Went back to my mother. She called my wife. My wife came back. She'd been to Al-Anon by then. Took me back to 17th and Broadway, and this time she detached with hate. <laughs> and I can remember waking up on that same cot with some of those same little vermin, angry and irritated I was still the same sophisticated pathologist. And I went upstairs, and sure enough, there were some of those same little men that were cause for indignity. So I went up in one of the private rooms, or one of the more palatial rooms, a 30-bed ward or something. There was one little fella standing there shaving. And I watched him for a while, and he had some aqua velvet on his dresser. And I said, is that yours? And he said, yeah. So can I borrow some? And he said, yeah. So I drank it. And while he was gone, after the powers that be, I drank all of their Vitalis and their Micron. Some of their Listerine. Didn't like Listerine very well. And they threw me off Skid Row in Oklahoma City. They said that I was a bad influence on these men that were trying to straighten out their lives. <laughs> but you know, I was living with this feeling of impending doom. During this period of time, I'd met a pathologist that I'd known early in my medical career who was sober in AA. He'd been sober four months. And God love him, he had a laboratory. And he was going to save me and improve his laboratory. And during the three weeks that I worked for him, he didn't either. Finally, he called me in and he said, you know, you're going to have to go away. And you may as well do something about your drinking. And I, and I knew what he meant. Didn't know where to go. I'd been practically every place. In January or February of that year, as I was launching my sober career, a person came into my life and came to Oklahoma City to speak. This lady knew a lot about alcoholism. She was a little confused about the correlation between drugs and booze, but I thought I could straighten that out. Uh, so I thought I'll go to Alina Lodge. So on June the 5th, 1972, some friends of mine from Alcoholics Anonymous came by after having made arrangements for me to go to Alina. And they were the interested, loving, caring members of Alcoholics Anonymous and very solicitous. I'd pack, so they unpacked me to make certain I had everything I needed and nothing that I didn't need. <laughs> they even had me take my shoes off so they could find that $20 bill in my sock. Took me out to the airport. Talked to the stewardess for a while about the special attention I would need. And on that day, I left for LaGuardia with $5. I had one Manhattan and two beers. My memory of what happened when I first got to Lena is a little fuzzy, so I really can't tell you what it was like. I can tell you what it should have been like. <laughs> I can imagine, if you would, you know, arriving at Lena, getting out of the limousine, being greeted with loving, kind, careful attention, walking into this big, beautiful office and being clutched to the very ample bosom of Jerry Delaney, and Jerry does have a very ample bosom. And reassured that everything was going to be all right. But that's not the way it happened. 
I remember signing up for four weeks. And about 13 weeks later, nothing had really happened. I, every now and then I say, oh, she sees me, you know, she knows I'm here. At that period of my life, I knew that I was an alcoholic, but I still didn't know what it meant. And I'd almost given up hope of getting well. I got there on June the 5th and sometime during the first week of August, and it might well have been eight years ago today. I don't know. Something happened to me. Adelina, when they haven't got anything else to do, and that's most of the time, um, they show you a chart called the Jelly chart. They bring it in and hang it up on the wall. And then they talk to you about the disease alcoholism. And I'd seen this chart several times and heard this lecture several times and hadn't understood it. But on this day, sometime the 1st of August, they brought that chart in and hung it up on the wall. And I remember where I was sitting and I remember that I was drinking coffee and smoking a cigarette. I remember getting up and going back to get a second cup of coffee and sitting down and looking up at that chart and suddenly knowing that I had a disease, that alcoholism is a disease. <clears throat> I could hear the title <clears throat> to the second chapter of the big book, There is a Solution, There is a Solution, There is a Solution. Over and over and over I heard these words and I saw this chart and I knew I had a disease and there was a solution. I could see almost superimposed upon this chart the, that part of the big book that we read at our meetings that the chapter to the agnostic, the description of the alcoholic and our personal adventures before and after make clear these pertinent ideas that we are alcoholic and can't manage our lives, that no human power could control our alcoholism but that God could and would if he were sought. And the very next line, that being convinced we're at step three. And I was mesmerized. And I was alone, and I was aware, and I suddenly knew that I had an illness. And at that moment, I came to believe that I could, probably wouldn't, but I could be restored to sanity. And I went back, and I got out my big book, and I read those three chapters, the description of the alcoholic, and the chapter of the agnostic, and the second chapter, there's a solution. And I found within those pages eight, nine, or ten times where it talks about the insanity of alcoholism is drinking. That being restored to sanity would merely mean I wouldn't have to drink again. And you see, I believe this could happen. <clears throat> if Bill's instructions had been to write that it would happen, I would have never made it because my, my degree of faith was not that great. But I did believe that it might. I believed it could. And I certainly was willing to try. And being convinced, I was at step three, so I read those next few pages where it says this is what it's all about and this is what we do. And I found on page 63 of the big book the most important words I've ever read in my life and certainly the most important words that were ever written for me. It says we found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with another person. My God, I had a disease, and I tried everything in the world to get well, and this could work. This could work. And these men had found it desirable to take this step with another person. So I found at Alina a man, Thomas J. Cochran, a priest. He had seniority on me. He'd been there longer than I had, and I, I admired that. So I showed this to T.J. and said, will you do this with me? And he said, I'd love to. So eight years ago from next Friday, underneath a pine tree on a hillside in the Pocono Mountains at a rehabilitation center just outside Blairstown, New Jersey, between 3.30 and 3.45 in the afternoon on August the 8th, 1972, with a priest named Thomas J. Cochran, I turned my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. I know I walked up that hill. And I was afraid, and I was fearful, and I was full of the sense of disaster. And I expected something to happen. Crowds didn't gather. 
And the clouds didn't part, and there was no great voice saying, This is my beloved son, and who I'm well pleased. <laughs> and T.J. and I came back down. And I went up to my seven-bed ward and got out my big book. And opposite that paragraph on page 63, I wrote on August the 8th, 1972, with T.J.C. I can remember waking up on August the 9th, and that feeling of impending doom was gone. The feeling of disaster was no longer with me. I was still afraid and I was still frightened. But down deep inside of me was a little feeling that it's going to be all right. I wasn't real sure what it was. But whatever it was, it was going to be okay. I hear people in Alcoholics Anonymous talking about taking the third step every morning. And I wonder who they take it with every morning. I think the disaster of alcoholism might well be not following these simple instructions that are laid out before us by these wise and wonderful men that went on ahead. I believe that on that day, I made an irrevocable covenant with God as I understand him that no matter what I do, no matter how I act, I will get that care that I can respond to to keep me on this path no matter what it is, even if it's drunkenness. I sort of think my third step might be like the story of the wayfarer that was walking along the mountains and he came across the sheep and the little shepherd was standing there with the lamb in his arms feeding him. And the wayfarer said, oh, is he sick? And the shepherd said, no, this little fellow won't obey instructions. He runs off across the hills away from the flock and away from the dogs. I'm afraid the wolves will get him. The wayfarer said, oh, what happened? The shepherd said, I broke his leg. That might well be the only kind of care I can respond to, but I do believe that that is the case. That's the kind of care I will get. And I live very comfortably with this thought. <clears throat> I was in a state of mind or state of conscience at that time to do as so many of my friends have advised me to do, to wait until my thinking was cleared up and my memory had returned and I could write the great American novel and Publish my fourth step and perhaps take the fifth step to the entire literary world. <laughs> I even had some fantasy about maybe they'd devote a whole issue of Reader's Digest to me, you know. Um, <laughs> such things as I wet the bed for the FBI or, you know, puking in these United States. But I made a mistake. I looked in the big book and on top of page 64 it says this decision referring to the third step. Though a vital and crucial one's of little lasting value unless at once followed by a look at ourselves. I still knew that I had a disease and there was a solution and it might work, so I'd better do what I was instructed to do. So I did. I sat down in August and perhaps September and wrote the inventory and I, I followed the directions in the big book as best I can, best I could. On October the 2nd, it was about a year after I went to the rehabilitation center in Dallas. This lovely, lovely person came up to me and said, I've done all I can for you. I fear for your sobriety. And with tears in her eyes, Mr. Laney told me I'd go back to Oklahoma City. She told me that I should attend a meeting that night and a meeting every night until I got relocated. Else I might get drunk. I developed some tolerance then. I realized Mr. Laney wasn't a physician and, and, and that, uh, that I knew the treatment for alcoholism. It was in the big book. And that I could follow the directions and I didn't, didn't see any need for her concern. So I went back to Oklahoma City, willing to do what the big book said and willing to do what Mr. Laney said. So I went back to Oklahoma City, willing to do what the big book said and willing to do what Mr. Laney said. And the plane lit in Oklahoma City at 9.10, and I remembered being told that I had to go to a meeting that night. And you see, I couldn't go to a meeting because the meeting was over. And I suddenly knew what it meant to be powerless. I knew I was powerless over alcohol. I knew everything I had to do. But I couldn't do it because the meeting was over. And I knew I was going to get drunk. And I was reminded that the big book tells me that loss of power or lack of power is my dilemma, and I believed it. And I knew it. And I understood it. 
And I knew what it meant to be an alcoholic. So I called my sponsor several times. That night, he suggested about 3 o'clock in the morning that I call his sponsor. <laughs> and I worried and I prayed and I stood because I knew I was going to get drunk. But I didn't get drunk. And I guess that's the last time I really ever worried about getting drunk because I can't do anything about it anyhow. I am truly powerless over alcohol. And I knew what the first step meant. I was in Oklahoma. Couldn't find a job. And for that I'm grateful. So I spent the next bit of my time learning more and more about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd go by and see my sponsor, Fritz. And Fritz is a lawyer. And he had emphysema, and he took oxygen, and he smoked cigarettes, and he thumped me on the chest and cussed a lot. And I remember one day I was talking to Fritz, and he was on my case, and I tried to distract him and said, guess I better take the fifth step. So he picked up the phone and made an appointment with me with a Episcopal priest in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And I was so afraid. I had my inventory, so I went back to my mother's house and did something that I guess might be strange. <clears throat> the big book said we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, so I went back in my room and I got this inventory out. And I read it out loud to God. And then I read it silently to myself. And then I went to Shawnee and I read it to this man. And he was a very wonderful and wise individual. And it reminded me that the Chinese have a, a saying that the farmer gathers up his trash and his rubbish, and the stupid farmer calls the trash man to haul it away, and then he buys some fertilizer to spread out over his grounds to make his crops grow. But the wise farmer spreads his own rubbish out and lets the new life grow in that. And this man didn't throw away any part of me. We just picked up each little piece and kind of blew it off and, and gave it back to me. This happened to me in October of 1972. I knew that I should get alone by myself for about an hour and take this book down off the shelf and look back over these first five propositions to make certain I left nothing out and prepare myself for the sixth and seventh step but things were going pretty good, and I was so full, of so full of humility that I had to get to a meeting to kind of brag about what I'd done. <laughs> so I put off the sixth and seventh step, and this became probably the most difficult thing I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think timing is of the essence in treating this as in treating any disease. So I had to worry and fret and stew with the sixth and seventh step, and in my life that's been a reward. At one time I tried to rewrite my inventory. And I was going to take the fifth step and then spend that hour so I could take the sixth and seventh, but my inventory wouldn't ride. It was, that was so unimportant. And worrying one day with the sixth and seventh step, I, I got confused about the words defect and the words shortcoming, and so I looked them up in the dictionary. You see, I had a list of things that I was willing to be rid of, such things as, if you'd believe it, arrogance and anger lust, and gluttony. And I would ask God to take away these things. I'd look around, and there they were. So I looked the word defect up in the dictionary. And my dictionary, and all other dictionaries that I've looked it up in since, says that a defect is something lacking that is necessary for completeness. That a defect is a deficiency. You know, I looked at my list, and I wasn't lacking in any of these things. I... And I looked at the seventh step, and these weren't my shortcomings. I was long in these suits. So I sat down, and I looked at these things that I was, and asked myself what I liked that allowed me to be this. And I came up with another list, a list of voids in my life. Trust, concern, understanding, empathy, interest. Love, 
the ability to be loved. And I found that I was totally defective in these traits. And asked myself, was I willing to have them, a small measure of them? And it's a difficult question. You know, it's one thing to be willing to give up hating an object or a person. But it's an entirely different issue to be willing to love that object of hate. But I must or I die. And I had me a list of those things that I was lacking in, deficient in, defective in. And I was willing to have God remove these voids. And I did on my knees one day with this list. Humbly asking him to remove these shortcomings. And I knew what the big book means when it says you have completed step seven. Because I believe that at that time and in that moment and that place. That I was indeed given a small measure of all these things before I had been without. Traits and Wishes and willingnesses that I could allow to grow, that could become part of me. And it's been an essential part of my recovery to be willing to look at that dark pit in which I find all those traits that are so unpleasant and to step on through that and be willing to change. For a wise man once told me that humility has two traits, that one, it's accepting what you are, but secondly, and far more important, it's the willingness to change. I was given an awareness of the people around me and the world around me, and the ability to love, and to be loved in return. And now as I continue to take personal inventory, I look for... These traits that I'm still deficient in, no longer lacking in, but deficient, remind myself that Alcoholics Anonymous is a program of growth and of giving. And it will indeed allow me to grow and will indeed give to me more and more of what I need to make me more comfortable. When I took the fifth step, I prepared a list of people I had harmed, and I was willing to make amends to them. And I full well knew that the big book says that not drinking just isn't enough, you know, that that just won't get it. That we should sit down with our family and accept the responsibilities that we have for the past. And I knew I should, but I didn't. In 1976, in November, I'd gone to the Southeast Conference on Alcohol, uh, AA Conference in, in uh, Streetport. My wife called me and said, can you come home? Our daughter, Robin, was sick in the hospital in St. Augustine where she was going to college. She developed Guillain-Barre syndrome. She had the flu. She said, can you come home? We must go to her. So I flew back to Pensacola, and Tish and I drove to St. Augustine and found, found Robin that was almost totally paralyzed. I flew back to Pensacola that evening to make arrangements uh, for a week off. And while I was gone, they did a tracheotomy, Tish stood alone while Robin had a tracheotomy as she had stood alone for so many years of my drinking. I got back to St. Augustine the next morning. Robin was on a respirator. I went to the family room and sat down and was quiet for a while and came to understand that God would take care of Robin and we all we had to do was manage we as medical men, her life support systems. And my fears were gone. <clears throat> On the 14th and 15th of November, the paralysis started to recede. She got a little sensation in her hand, so I flew back to Pensacola to arrange air transport to bring her by air ambulance back to Pensacola for recovery. At about 1.15 on the morning of November the 16th, Tish called me from St. Augustine and said, Robin just died. The tracheotomy had perforated her trachea into the carotid artery and she'd exsanguinated. I turned to Alcoholics Anonymous and one of my support systems took me to St. Augustine to my wife and daughter. Another came and took care of my young son. Tish and Robin and I came back to Pensacola the next morning. 
And I always thought that flowers and contributions at funerals were primitive. But I went alone that morning to the funeral home amidst these beautiful flowers and this beautiful person. And I can remember standing there beside my daughter with the beginning thought of, my God, my God, how can this happen to me? And I, I, I suddenly became aware, like a thunderbolt, that, my God, you've been sober four and a half years. You've been sober four and a half years. And I was filled with a peace and a joy and a gratitude that allowed my sadness to go unlimited and unaffected and unmodified by my own self-pity. And people tell me that you cannot grieve for the dead, and that's just not so. Through the strength of this program, you can experience sadness that knows no boundaries without self-pity and remorse. And I stood there and I knew exactly, exactly what it means when it says that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I had tried so desperately for sobriety. For the first 15 years of her life, I tried and I tried and my wife tried and my friends tried and nothing happened. And Alcoholics Anonymous came along and in some magic and mysterious and mystical way allowed me to give to my daughter the most precious gift she ever had, a sober daddy. And I was grateful. We had a preacher from Oklahoma that came out to celebrate this with us. He was my daughter's surrogate father during my drinking life in Ardmore. Tish and I picked up John Peterson, the airport. We brought him back to our house and walked into the foyer. My spiritual strength was in the other room. And he didn't see them. But when he walked into that house, he says, My God, my God, what is it? Where did it come from? I've been searching for this all my life. You see, during this period of my recovery, I needed no spiritual strength of my own because it was all around me. And it was feelable, and it was touchable, and it was knowable. And he knew it. We had a graveside service. The family came up and sat down. And as soon as we had seated ourselves, I heard a rustling around me and whispers, and I could feel this strength, these AA people growing closer. After the service was over, they came up to me. Many of them said, did you see it? Did you see it? And I said, no, did we see what? So that just as the preacher started talking, a big, beautiful yellow butterfly came to the casket and he visited every flower and left when the preacher closed. I don't believe that butterfly is a miracle. I'm certain that butterflies and the such appear in our lives time and time again and often. But the miracle of it all is that I believe and I understand and I know. Being reborn is not miraculous. But I, I'm convinced that the willingness to live is indeed a miracle. That afternoon, I went back to the graveside and stood there in the parlor of God and looked at this beautiful grave without self-pity and without anger and without regret. But I said, my God, I don't understand. And I knew again, son, it's not necessary to understand. Don't worry about it. You needn't understand at all. And the need to appreciate and comprehend this catastrophe was lifted from me. Brother John went back to Ardmore, called me that night, said the damnedest thing. He's a Christian, disciples of Christ preacher. He said the damnedest thing happened on the way back to Dallas. We changed planes in New Orleans. And I was sitting there, and this guy got on the plane, sat, next, sat down next to me, and he said, Mister, I'm a hopeless, helpless drunk, and there ain't nothing that can be done for me. John said, I looked at him and said, my friend, I've just learned something that can be done for you. John said when he got to Dallas, he got a call to come to the Delta desk. And he went up to the Delta desk. 
There's a 35-year-old man there that said, are you Mr. Peterson? He said, yes. He said, I don't know what you said to my daddy. But he's got a gleam in his eye that I've never seen before. And he says he's going to be all right. That's really not a miracle. The miracle is that I have never questioned whether or not this man got sober. You see, I know he did. I know he had to. I had, after I'd written my fourth step inventory, continued on a daily basis to look at fear, dishonesty, resentment, and self-centeredness. And during these years of recovery, had become more proficient and better at continuing inventory, looking at myself. I had indeed sought through prayer med meditation to improve my conscious contact with God, and it was a moment like this that I became aware of what contact with God really means. And I had developed, I hope, the willingness to put forth the effort to continue with the 11th step. And on my bathroom wall, I've got a little outline of what the big book says the 11th step consists of, because I have difficulty starting the day off full of vim and vigor. And I go through this ritual. I believe, like so many people do, that the alcoholic needs discipline. But I believe most strongly that the discipline he needs is spiritual discipline, and that the others will follow We'd adopted a little fella who's not where he's supposed to be right now, incidentally, back in 1970. Several years ago, when I'd come home from work, well, several years ago, Bullet's favorite saying was, ain't you glad? Mama's mad, ain't you glad? The tire's flat, ain't you glad? And I'd come home from work, he'd come running out of the house. And I'd go out and pick him up, you know, and I'd look down into the very mirror of his soul. And I'd say, what's your name, fella? He'd say, my name's Bullet Morton, ain't you glad? My God, I'd think, ain't I glad? And I'd look back over what I have to be glad and grateful for, and I, it's multitudinous. Somebody asked me what the most important thing I ever learned is. I can unequivocally say I learned that alcoholism is a disease and there is a solution. Somebody asked me what the most important thing I ever did was. I can tell you the most important thing I ever did, I did on August the 8th, 1972, when I turned my will and my life over to the care of God, as I understand him. Somebody said, what's the most important thing that ever happened to you? I can tell you it's that repetitive phenomenon of having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. And that's really the message that I have to carry, and I think that we all have to carry. Not that I drank Vitalis and Micron and Rubby Dub and smoke. But that as a direct result of these steps, I've had a spiritual awakening. If I'm aware of that, there's no way in the world I can keep from trying to practice these principles in all my affairs. So I've got an awful lot to be grateful for. I'm... Those things that alcoholism and its activity took away from, from me have been restored to me through the activity of recovery. For those, I'm grateful. I make damn near as much money as a pathologist ought to make. I've got the respect and tolerance of my peers. I've lost the inordinate fear that comes with alcoholism. But those things that I'm most grateful for and most awed by are things that I didn't know existed. The love of my fellow man and my ability to love him. A faith in God that's no bigger than a mustard seed, then I realize that's enough. A gratitude for those things that are and will be. And a tremendous, tremendous gratitude for being an alcoholic. Because you see, if I weren't an alcoholic, I wouldn't have a bullet. I've heard that mystics spend a great deal of their life trying to describe what's happened to them. I could spend a great deal of my life trying to tell you or her 
what Jerry Delaney means to me. It's wordless. People say that our sobriety is not the responsibility of one person, but the person that gave me back my life was Jerry Delaney. And I'm awesomely grateful for that. I guess of all the things that I have for gratitude to be grateful for, the most miraculous are that I am aware that this spiritual program is not a theory that we can live it. That the alcoholic hadn't been born yet, who, if he will believe and do certain things, cannot recover. And when the new man says to me, but Doc, I can't believe, I can say to him with all honesty, there's one thing you can believe. You can believe that I believe, and I'm not a damn fool. I believe that God can and indeed will restore us to sanity. This fact that I know God does for me what I can't do for myself is an awesome awareness. But of all those things that I own and have and possess that Alcoholics Anonymous has given to me, not many more are more important to me than your alcoholism. Oh, I'm so glad you're alcoholics, whether you are or not, because, you know, if you weren't, there would have been nobody around in 1972 when I was in that pit. There'd be nobody here this morning to laugh and cry and, and experience this with me. But more importantly than that, there'd be nobody down the road while I'd enter that tunnel again and be surrounded by blackness and fear. Be nobody to wave that little light down to the end and tell me it's going to be all right. And for that, I'm truly grateful. But far above all else, Alcoholics Anonymous gave me the one great and beautiful gift. And for my daughter's sober daddy, Robin and I will be, oh, eternally grateful. And you cannot doubt that I love you. And I appreciate being here. And I thank you so much.